0: reading today is from Mark chapter 10. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink Or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they replied, We are are able. Then Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called to them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers, lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great amongst you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be a slave to all. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This is the word of God for the people of God.
1: Thank you, Steve, for the scripture lesson. And wow, how blessed we are with our praise band. And, uh, thank you, Bethany, for that song and for all of your inspiration. <clears throat> <clears throat> we just got to find a way to move you over here and have you more regular with us. <laughs> We're always appreciative of it when she gets to come. And. And we've got such talent that are willing to share their talents with us that we just give thanks for that. Let us pause for a moment of prayer before we uh, enter into taking a look at these words that we've just heard and its meaning for our life. Let's ask for God's Holy Spirit to direct us today. Let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit. Meet us in this place where we are. Speak to us. We put ourselves in your hands on the potter's wheel now. Asking that you might shape us and mold us, the people you long for us, you've created us to be. So, God, we open ourselves to you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning we are, are continuing in a series of sermons that we started last week on, and we're calling the Wesleyan Challenge. In 1729, John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, Uh, was asked by his younger brother, Charles, and some of his friends who were meeting together. They were actually students at Oxford University. And they asked uh, John for some help in their quest to grow spiritually and to become more deeply committed disciples of Jesus Christ. So uh, their older brother, John, put together a list of questions, 21 questions to be exact. And he said, if you you, uh, look at these questions, reflect upon them, uh, ask them of each other, spend time in group, individually, you know, just really focusing on these questions on a regular basis, they will help you in your knowledge of God, in your experience of God, in your love for God, and also to put your faith into practice, your service of God. And so um, over the next, over this last last week and this week and next week or three weeks, uh, we are encouraging you to become modern day Methodist by reflecting on these 21 questions. And I hope that you'll take the time to do that. Uh, this is um, the questions that we got last week. We're each week in your study guide. you Hopefully you got those in your handout this morning. Uh, the study guide has the questions. There's seven questions uh, for each week. We got the seven of them last week. And if you don't get those, you forget to take it home with you. You can always download these from our website as well. You go there. But um, you got seven questions last week. Hopefully you went through some of that. And this week you're getting seven more questions. It starts today. And um, you'll notice that the questions that you have this week are all dealing with Christian character. I mean, like the question for today is, am I proud? Uh, The question for Wednesday is, do I grumble and complain a lot? Those of you who have spouses want to make sure they read that one and study on that one, right? On uh, Thursday, it's, uh, am I a slave to dress, uh, friends, work, or habits? On Saturday, it's, uh, am I uh, self-conscious, self-pitying, or uh, self-justifying? Again, these are all questions aimed at causing us to examine ourselves and see how we're, we're growing in our, our Christian character and our discipleship. So I hope that you'll take the time to engage in this process and uh, go through the questions each day. I truly believe that by looking through these and putting these into practice, it'll transform your life. This morning I want to begin by um, referring to a book that, if you haven't read this, I would encourage you to read it. It's a great read. It's uh, The Road to Character by uh, David Brooks. David Brooks is a conservative columnist for uh, the New York Times. And uh, in this book, he begins his book talking about two uh, biblical passages, actually, <clears throat> not what you would typically expect in, a, in this in a writer, but he, he talks about two biblical passages, and he reminds the reader that there are actually two creation stories in the Bible. You may or may not know that, but in the book of Genesis, there's two different uh, stories about creation, and these come from different traditions, so they tell the story of cre- creation in different ways. In Genesis 1, you have... The first creation story, this is where uh, I love how it's put together because it's it's put in Hebrew poetry, which is really beautiful. Uh, It has this refrain that goes throughout the story. It's like uh, on the first day, God said, let there be light. And there was light and God saw that there was light and God saw that it was good. There was evening. uh, There was morning the first day. And as it progresses through the story, you hear this refrain over and over again each day. Uh, and God looked at things and said it was good. Then on the sixth day, God achieves his crowning act of creation by creating human beings. This is what we read. God said, Let this create man, humanity, in our image. And so God spoke, and, uh, ma- and the male and the female were both created together in this story, and they were created in the image of God. And God looked upon them and said, This is good. It is very good. So you have this picture in Genesis chapter 1 of human beings that are good. They're uh, compassionate. They're kind. They're, uh, they're seeking justice. I mean, they're, they're, they're reflecting the image of God. And then you get to the second story of creation, which is found in Genesis chapter 2. And it's a little bit different. It's not written in Hebrew poetry. It's more of a narrative. And this story says that uh, God creates Adam from the dust of the earth. And it doesn't say that he created Adam and Eve at the same time. It's, and it, the text does not imply that he, or does not state that uh, he created Adam and Eve in his image. Instead, it says that God took the dust from the earth and he formed uh, the first human being. And then after he breathed into Adam the breath of life, he placed him in paradise. And after a while, God realizes that it's not good that man should be alone. And so God uh, takes from Adam a rib. And he creates a new, improved model of human beings, uh, right, the, the woman. And uh, he, he brings her to live with Adam in, in the garden. And then, as you read the story, we're introduced to the fact that there's a tree in this garden. Uh, it's called the Tree of the Knowledge of Good and Evil. And God tells Adam and Eve, do not eat from this tree. This belongs to me. Do not eat from the, fru- the fruit of it, or you will surely die. But then we get introduced to another character in this story. It's a serpent. The serpent says, God really didn't mean that. He didn't mean that. In fact, he's trying to tell you that if you eat from that tree, you're going to become like God. Well, Adam and Eve couldn't resist the opportunity to become like God, and so they eat of the forbidden fruit, um, and paradise is lost. They're banned from the garden, and the next scene that we have is Cain killing his brother Abel. So in these two stories, you have two very different pictures of human beings, on one hand, you have uh, human beings who are kind and compassionate, merciful. They're good. Uh, they reflect the image of God. In the second story, you have human beings desiring to be like God. They're arrogant. Uh, they're they're filled with uh, ambition, desiring success. They they tend to point the blame at anybody else but themselves. Uh, they point, they blame others for their mistakes, their actions. They don't really care if their actions. Im- Im- hurt anybody else. All they're really concerned about is themselves. And so we have these two very different pictures of human beings with these two stories. And David Brooks points out the fact that we have both of these atoms within us. Each one of us has uh, the atom that longs to be good, that longs to do God's will, that longs to be kind and compassionate and just and, and humble and merciful. But at the same time, we also have this atom within us that's mostly concerned about ourselves. It is filled with pride, arrogance, that uh, easily blames anybody else, <laughs> concerned about everybody else except our own mistakes. And um, really, the focus is all about me. Now, he goes on to say in his book, he says, We live in a culture that teaches us to promote and advertise ourselves and to master the skills required for success. But that gives little encouragement to humility, sympathy, honest self-confrontation, which are necessary for building character. And I think this is also true that he says. I mean, you just think about that. It, when, you, when you go out in the world and try to uh, be successful in the world, you, you really have to uh, toot your own horn. You have to uh, uh, you know, make your own accomplishments known. You have to fill out your resume. And on that resume, you're listing all the accomplishments you have to try to impress people. Um we, we live in this kind of world where we make stars of certain people and uh, others are not thought of in that high because these, these stars will have influence, they have success and power and, and other people don't measure up to that and so we don't value them the same. And this is the kind of world that we live in. This is what the world encourages us to be. So where can I go where I'm encouraged to be kind and compassionate and merciful and loving and just where can I go to, to be, uh, reflect, learn how to reflect the image of the living God? Well, for me, it's, it's here. It's church. <laughs> you know, part of what we do on Sunday mornings when we gather in this place is that we, we remember who we are and who we are called to be. Uh, we invite God to put us on the potter's wheel, so to speak, where He can shape us and mold us into the people God calls us and creates us to be. Where can I go? that reminds me to be that better Adam in myself and not the other. It's when I spend time with prayer and God, when I am, um, you know, due to my devotionals myself or with others, when I'm uh, reading the Bible, when I'm attending classes, Sunday school classes, Bible studies and, you know, other small groups where people are going coming together to seek God's will for their lives. That's when I experience that. All of those are ways that help us to, to, uh, to examine and to grow in our Christian character and to become the people God created us to be, those, that better Adam of ourselves. And I, I think this is why John Wesley really developed these questions. He was trying to get those first Methodists to um, examine their lives and to try to become the human beings that God created us to be. Uh, the questions that you have for you this week. The implication is that if you're saying yes to those questions, if you're saying yes to the fact that I am self-conscious, self-pitying, or self-justifying, if I'm saying yes to the fact that I'm grumbling and complaining constantly, then the implication is that we are giving in to our lesser self. We're becoming more like the other Adam. If that's how we're living, that's our character. Because again, we have the potential to be either or of these things, one Adam or the other. They're both within us. It's interesting to note that in uh, the Berkeley University of Psychologists, um, Dasher Keltner actually did he's done a lot of study of the effects that power has upon human beings. It's a fascinating read. He actually says when you give people power, they basically start acting like fools. <laughs> you ever notice that? Uh, he goes on to say that uh, he compares the feeling of power to brain damage. <clears throat> he says people with great power tend to behave like neurological patients with a damaged frontal lobe, a brain area that is uh, essential for empathy and decision-making. And then he goes on to say, even the most virtuous people can be undone by the corner office. Now, I mention that because I think all of us here, in one way or another, some place in our life, we've experienced, we've tasted power. Maybe you were, the, you were the prettiest girl in school, or you were the captain of the football team, or, um, you know, you were the smartest kid in class. <laughs> or you were popular. And because of that, you had power. Or maybe you had a job or you have a job that is, you've been very successful. Or maybe, maybe you're just privileged because you have a status that's higher compared to others in society. We all have power over others in, in some way or another. We experience that. And for all of us who've experienced or tasted power over others, then these words serve as a caution for us. Because he says, even the most virtuous people can be undone by power. Some synonyms for this kind of power are conceit, pride, vainglory, arrogance. Those things are within us all. David Brooks says this in his book. He says, if the lesser Adam rules in your life. You turn into shrewd animals, crafty, self-preserving creatures who are adept at playing the game. and Who turn everything into a game. So, again, I think Wesley's questions are aimed at helping us to grapple with this, to see if if we're becoming like this, if we're becoming shrewd and crafty, turning everything into a game where it's all about us or. Are we reflecting the opposite of these questions? We're becoming more kind, more generous, more loving, compassionate, just. So I want to ask you the question today. Which Adam is prevailing in your life? The Adam of Genesis 2? (laughs) Or the Adam that is reflecting the image of God in Genesis 1? which atom is prevailing in your life? Well, what's true of us as individuals is also true of us as a nation. Our nations and societies can be shaped by that first atom or the second atom. Uh, we all have that potential within us. They can Nations can, can become hostile. They can become self-centered. Uh, nations can uh, strip away people's rights. Uh, they can become cruel and insensitive to the needs of the minorities or the marginalized of their societies. So nations can either become like totalitarian states or they can become, uh, like in the words of uh, Ronald Reagan, that shining city on a hill for all to see. A nation that is characterized by compassion, justice, mercy, kindness, love, that protects, cares for all of its uh, citizens, so, again, the question is for us as a nation, which are we going to be? Now, I recognize that um, we have people in this congregation that are on both sides of the political aisle, <laughs> and uh, in our environment today, people have strong opinions and positions about our current president, our nation, all that stuff, and we're not going to get into that this morning. Uh, you know, not, not, somebody said, you're going to preach on politics today? I said, no, I know better than that. <coughs> so... Uh, <laughs> Uh, we're not getting into that, but you know, as I was looking at this and thinking about this, that slogan that happened in the last presidential campaign, and you hear, still hear a lot about it, uh, the one that you heard from Donald Trump, uh, you see it on the hats, you, hear, you see it on T-shirts and bumper stickers and all that. That came to my mind, you know, that make America great again. You, you've seen it. And uh, that is a vision <laughs> for America. Um, regardless of how you felt about the candidate or feel about him, you know, it, it's a great slogan for a presidential campaign. It really is because you've got a whole lot of people out there that have this infatuation, nostalgia for the good old days, you know, the past. Uh, we long to go back to when everything was great. And so there's this, there's this inertia. People want to take things back to when it was all great. Now, young people don't think that way. Uh, they, they don't. They don't remember any days that were great that they want to go back to. Uh, they, they're thinking about uh, the future and how to make America great in the future, right? But the older you get, the more you kind of long or you look back for those days uh, or wanting to go back for the days in the past. You have that fondness. And as I was thinking about that, you know, make America great again. Well, when was America really great? I mean, you know, make it great, great again. So when was it really great? And you ask people... And they I've got different opinions about this. Some feel like it was great back in the 1950s. That's when America was really great. Well, I wasn't around much in the 1950s, but I did watch a lot of the Happy Days series on television. And it seemed happy back then, you know. It's, a lot of happiness going on there. Uh, maybe that's when America was really great. As long as you weren't African-American or you weren't a part of some other group that didn't have equal rights or was, um, didn't have, wasn't treated with dignity. So when was America really great? I think for Donald Trump, I mean, I am speak for him, but I think he was really reflecting upon the 1980s period. It was kind of the Ronald Reagan era, where there was a uh, perceived uh, nobility in the office of president, and there was economy was was doing well and coming back, rebounding. You had the Iron Curtain that fell. Um, America was respected all across the world, and maybe that's what he had in mind in his slogan and. And uh, actually, if you look at his speeches, the things that he talks about in his speeches, we, he's talking about how to make America great again. This is what he says. It's, it's, it's to increase manufacturing in America. is to reduce unemployment, double the growth of the GDP, eliminate the deficit, erase the national debt, debt fix health care so prices don't rise, save Social Security, spend more on the military, and reduce everybody's taxes in the process. Wow, that's, that sounds pretty amazing to me. Now I'm thinking, well, I can see why I want to buy into this, this. This sounds great. And I really hope those things happen because a lot of that stuff has been plaguing our country for a long time. But, you know, when I think about when America was great, maybe I'm just different, but I don't, my mind doesn't go to when the GDP was 4% increases and all that kind of stuff. When I think about when America was great, I'm reminded of those times when I went to Washington, D.C. with my family. Uh, for me, the first time I went to Washington DC when I was forty six years <laughs> old. How many of you have been to Washington DC? Huh? Yeah, a lot of you have. For me it was just just crazy. I was I was so amazed at all the you get to see, you know, the White House and you see the Smithsonian and the, the Washington Monument and the House of Congress and all these things. It just it was so cool. And um, one of the things that really impressed me the most was going to those monuments in Washington D C. And we got to see a lot of those monuments during the day, but the most um, the memorable time for me was when we got to take the night tour. I don't know how many of you did that. You take the night tour to, to the monuments. It's just, oh, they're so beautiful. And I still remember them all. <coughs> this is actually one of them you get to see there. The night is just picturesque. This is the, the Jefferson Memorial. And uh, this was an, exi- this is a memorial that was actually uh, designed after the Pantheon in Rome. And um, in the center of it, you have uh, Thomas Jefferson kind of in Rome. That's where the God would be. You know, <laughs> Thomas Jefferson in the center, and he's surrounded by words that have been immortalized from this man. The most important words were, "We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness." Now, seeing that, reading those words. Just reminding me that this is part of what makes America great. That we were a nation born on these convictions. Uh, we then traveled to the next memorial, which was the uh, Lincoln Memorial, and, and the Lincoln Memorial. Uh, it, it's a beautiful, picturesque thing. It actually was um, it was patterned after the Pantheon in Athens, and uh, inside there's you know Abraham Lincoln sitting in the big chair and. On one side, either side of him, you have the words, the Gettysburg Address, and you have the second inaugural uh, address on the other side. And what he's remembered for in that memorial is how he preserved the Union. But, you know, what do most people remember Abraham Lincoln for? <clears throat> how he um, ended slavery. And that we are going to be an, a country that actually puts into practice the things that we say. That we're going to be a country that where all men are created equal And they are endowed with their creator, certain inalienable rights. When I reflect upon that monument, it it causes me to remember just this is what makes America great, how we were torn apart as a country, and yet what prevailed was human rights for all. Uh, Not everyone has seen this next monument. Uh, It's actually the Theodore Roosevelt, um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, excuse me, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, not Theodore Roosevelt. Memorial, and uh, it's, a, it's a really interesting memorial because it's kind of spread out. It's a big place. You can go walk from one thing to the next all over the place. It's, it, uh, at, the, at this uh, particular thing, the top there, you'll see uh, inscribed, I, I see one-third of a nation ill-housed, ill-clad, ill-nourished. And on the left, you're going to see uh, seniors uh, who are without Social Security at that time, and few had pensions. And even if they did, uh, when their company went bankrupt during the Great Depression, they lost everything. And then on the other side, you see men standing in the bread line who were out of work. And then the stone plaque at the center of this has a quote from FDR. The test of our progress is not whether we add more to the uh, abundance of those who have much. It's whether we provide enough for those who have too little. For me, that's part of what makes America great, that we care about the needs of others in this country, particularly those who are weak and vulnerable. Another monument that really stuck out for me is the World War II monument. And here you get to see and read about all the various battles that took place in World War II and how 291,000 men and women in this, from this country died to protect the liberties and the freedoms we have and to save others who were facing oppression. 291,000 men and women in this country gave their life sacrificed for another that's part of what makes america great our willingness to do this another memorial that um, is pretty impactful is the martin luther king jr memorial is exactly not too far from where dr king got on the steps of the lincoln memorial and addressed and gave his uh, speech where he cast another vision for america now, you remember how he gave his "I Have a Dream" speech? He's saying America will be great when we're actually living up to what we say we believe, and all people are cre- that all people are created equal when little black children and little white children can play together when people are judged by the quality of their character, not by their skin. Again, this for me is part of what makes America great when we're striving to live into that character and those values as a country. Here lately we've been seeing some other scenes <coughs> on our television sets, such as this one. Uh, during the hurricanes, we've seen lots of pictures of how people from our country have come all over to Texas and to, to now to Florida, and we had it happen here last year. Um, and again, this is what, part of what makes America great to me, is how we come together in times of crisis and tragedy, and we, we help each other out. That's part of our DNA and who we are. Now, I do believe that there is a greatness in having a good economy, you know, where people have jobs and have opportunities, and I I think it will be great if we can see the GDP increase, where taxes go down, the deficit go down, all that kind of stuff, but what I hope and pray is in the process of pursuing that, we don't forget the things that really make us great. Here lately, a lot of the images I'm seeing on television make me wonder, that we got a lot of people in our country that are forgetting about these things. When I actually <clears throat> scheduled this sermon uh, was during the time when we were watching all the images in Charlottesville, North Carolina. Now we see even more. And so, you know, as citizens, but also as Christians, it is my hope that we will seek to hold our leaders and one another accountable to these virtues, these, these things that we believe really make America Great. And this takes us into the text that we have this morning. You have the disciples who are journeying with Jesus to Jerusalem. And at this point, they they believe with all their hearts that Jesus is going to be crowned king when he gets to Jerusalem. Uh, So he's they're on the road, they start to enter into a little town called Jericho on their way. And again, they feel like the climax of their journey they've been with Jesus for three years now. and They're headed to Jerusalem. They just know in their hearts that when he gets there, they're going to recognize him as the Messiah. They're going to crown him as king. But Jesus keeps trying to tell them that's not what's going to happen, guys. In fact, just before our passage in verse 32, Jesus took the 12 aside and he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death, and then they will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit upon him, flog him, and then kill him. Jesus tried to tell them this numerous times, but they just didn't want to hear it. And so they go in and into to Jericho on their way to Jerusalem, and two of the disciples, James and John, approach Jesus. Uh, we don't know where the other ten are. They're off doing something else. <clears throat> but so James and John seize this opportunity to have some time alone with Jesus. And they come to Jesus and say, Jesus... We've got a favor to ask of you. I, I know you're putting together your cabinet right now. And uh, here's my resume. James says, here's my resume. Man, I, I want to be considered as vice president. And uh, then you have uh, uh, John speaks. Up and says, I want to be considered secretary of state. You know, I, w- I want to sit one at your right, one at your left, and you come to the glory of your kingdom. And Jesus looks at them and says, "Say what? What are you talking about? Are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink from? And they said, yes, Jesus, you know, we can drink from the golden chalice, yes. Jesus looks at them very sadly and says, you will drink from the chalice that I'm going to drink from. And you remember what chalice he's talking about, right? His suffering and his death. You will drink from the chalice that I'm going to drink, but it's not up to me to tell you who's going to sit on the right and the left. And We know that eventually all of them had to die for their faith. They didn't understand it at this point. Now, at this point, which atom within James and John is driving them? It's the atom of you know, seeking power, status, arrogance, ambition. And then we hear how the other ten disciples, they notice noticed James and John speaking to Jesus over in the corner there and. The text says they got angry at James and John. Why did they get angry at James and John over this? Because they wanted the same thing. And they were just upset because James and John beat them to the punch. And, uh, you know, it's kind of just a funny story. Again, which Adam is motivating them? It doesn't end there, though. Even on the night when Jesus got in the upper room, his last night, the night he was going to be arrested, Uh, we're told by Luke that the disciples are whispering among themselves. What were they whispering about? Who's going to be the greatest when he gets to his kingdom? Which of of us is going to be the greatest? Be in the seat of honor. And Jesus looks at them and says, you guys just don't get it, do you? You still don't get it. Then John's gospel tells us that Jesus at that point robed himself like a slave and he got on his knees and he washed their feet. He said to them, you call me Lord. And rightly I am, but I have shown you what it means to really be great. He took the role of servant. In Mark's gospel, he says, Whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be a slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give a life as a ransom for many. So how does Jesus define greatness? As he hangs on a cross the next day, which Adam does he model for us? He's the Adam that is reflecting the image of God. He lays down his life for others. And this is what we are called to be. So here's my prayer, my hope. You know, I truly pray for our president. I pray for our leaders because within them, are both of those atoms, And I'm praying that God help them to, to um, be, their, be their best noble self, that the best Adam will emerge in who they are and what they do. I'm praying that under the weight of the responsibility they have, that they'll lean on God, they'll turn to God, and that uh, God will help them bring out their best self, that their character will be ennobled in this process. That's my open prayer. I also pray for us as a nation, I pray that uh, we try to aspire to our greatest self as a nation, our greatest character, to be true light for others, staying true to those values that really make us great. But I also pray for us as individuals because that's where it begins. I pray that we might reflect the atom within us that brings forth the best of who we are. Help us, O God, in this. I want to end with a, a quick little story. It's an African-American story. Some of you may have heard this. <laughs> it's my little Cherokee boy who was being bullied at school. And uh, he comes home one day after school. He's crying. He's upset. He's been picked on. He's, uh, just, he's angry. And, and uh, his grandfather comes to him and asks him, he says, well, what's going on? He says, I've got this boy at school who's picking on me. He's, he's bullying me. He's, he's, he's hurting my feelings. All this stuff's going on. I just hate him. I just hate him. And the grandfather at that point said, son, remember, there are two wolves within all of us. One wolf is like a protector who is kind. And he wants to do what is good. He wants to take care of the weak. The other wolf is like what you're seeing in that bully. He doesn't care about anybody but himself. He seeks power at the expense of others. It's all about him. These two wolves live in us all. And the boy then said, Grandpa, well, which wolf is going to win? And the grandfather says, whichever wolf you feed. So I ask you today, which wolf are you feeding? Which atom is prevailing in your life? The fact that you're here today <laughs> says that you're seeking to encourage that better atom to emerge in your character and your life. let's pray together that God helps us in this process. Join me in prayer. Lord God, help us. Help us to be the people that you created us to be. You are the potter and God, we put our lives in your hands and ask for you to shape us, to um, work with your Holy Spirit, to bring out the best of who we were created to be. Help us to reflect your image Practice loving kindness toward others. Help us to seek justice for all. And We pray, God, for our leaders. We ask that you would guide our country, that we might truly be great in your eyes. Lord, this is our prayer. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.